9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host and I am in New York City. Joining us from points across America, we have the farthest away, Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. How are you, Corey? Exceedingly well, thank you, David. Excellent. Somewhere between Corey Shockey and the rest of us, in an old schoolhouse surrounded by farm implements, we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown Law School. How are you today, Rosa? Hi, David. And not as far from here as he probably wishes, but nonetheless, in a prettier place, we have David Sanger of the New York Times. How are you today, David? Very good, David. So I want to talk about a couple of things. I'm going to start with one story and then it'll lead to something else. And that is that today a story came out from a bunch of scientists at the United Nations, a report that said, first of all, on the, on the issue of the climate crisis, we've already screwed up and we, we've already locked in one, one and a half percent temperature increase in the world simply by not moving fast enough but that we could see up to four degree temperature increase in the world if we don't act quickly and take this code red seriously. And of course, the report's written in you know very compelling tones, but all you have to do is turn on the news and you see evidence everywhere. But I mean, Corey sometimes can look out her window there and see evidence of it. But I find it particularly striking that not only is California in the midst of its second largest wildfire ever. But Turkey is in flame. Greece is in flames. Pictures of Athens with flames around its borders. We've seen the implications of extreme weather other than heat as well in terms of, you know, hurricanes and typhoons and, and so forth. And I just want to get the reaction of all of you to this by the way, it's compounded somewhat by the fact that if you're going to say what's the biggest international issue other than that going on currently at the moment, it's coronavirus. And if you were to take it a step further and say, what are the big issues emerging on the horizon in international affairs? And a huge number of them are technology related. And we'll come to some of the specifics there. And obviously, we've all talked about it here, whether it's next generation warfare or cyber or whatever. All of you have at one point or another been involved in the teaching of people who enter the field of national security and foreign policy. And it seems to me like nobody's going to be able to do these jobs going forward if they can't speak from some expertise coherently about climate or about next generation technology, that these are not specialty issues. These are issues that have to inform every decision. Is that too sweeping a statement, Corey? No, I don't think it's too sweeping a statement. 
You know, I think public policy work is diverging more from academic work because the trend in academic work is towards narrower and narrower specialization. And in public policy, what we increasingly need are people who have interdisciplinary training who look at problems, at policy challenges with a wide array of potential tools because the nature of the problems that we are addressing, like climate, demand it, right? If, if you, as I do not, have enough scientific proficiency to make a judgment about climate issues and where it should fit in priorities, I need to master that expertise because otherwise I am serving the American people poorly by making policy recommendations in an area of extraordinary importance and ignorance. And if you look at technology, I mean, most defense experts can't tell you whether to buy three gallons of cyber or five gallons of cyber, or even if gallons is the right metric for measuring cyber. I think cyber is measured in liters. Actually. <laughs> right. So all of us need to read David's book. Which is measured in Amazon sales, Corey. <laughs> Um, so all of us need to get that basic proficiency because otherwise you can't make a sensible judgment about the apportionment of defense spending or what a U.S.-China war would look like. I mean, does China have the ability to knock out satellites, which would knock out communications in the American military or not? A huge element of your operational choices depend on that. And so all of us have actually got to up our game. The reason I pose a question is because I agree with that. And, you know, you think of the things that people who go into these fields are traditionally trained to do. They need to know how the government works and they need to know how international systems work. And they've got some, you know, education often in things like conflicts and conflict resolution and so forth. There's certain cross-cutting issues that touch upon everything. Everything has a climate consequence. Many things have a, a climate as a consequence on many other things. Almost everything is changed by the evolution of technology, of which we know of some developments now, but there will be others in the future. What do you think of this, Rosa? That seems very right, David. No, I mean, absolutely. I, I don't think this is, I don't think it's a new problem, but I think it has a new urgency. I think it has always been the case that one major challenge uh, has been that policymakers and elected officials are usually scientifically illiterate, which has made them a very poor group of people to make wise policy or pass wise laws that relate to technological and scientific developments. That's, I think that's been true for a very long time. Certainly, if you ask any, any science or tech person whose career has had brought them into contact with DC policymakers, even 30, 40, 50 years ago, they will complain about the same thing. I, but what I think is different now is just that the stakes, the stakes continue to get higher and higher and higher. Um, I mean, obviously, stakes with nuclear power and nuclear weapons were very, very high. We still have all of those issues. And in fact, the Biden administration has to decide what to do in terms of nuclear policy. 
that hasn't gone anywhere, even though it's not at the forefront of any of our minds anymore. But when it comes to planning for the next pandemic, which will surely come when it comes to climate change, when it comes to cyber, when it comes to space, when it comes to all kinds of issues, the fact that so few of our leaders have that background makes it really hard to have confidence that they're going to be able to interpret the data, interpret the studies, interpret the evidence. And I, and I think you know the result of that, as we see, is that you get a lot of people who are just sort of, well, my friend so-and-so says this, and so it's what I think, and that substitutes for any kind of expertise. David, what do you think? You've hit on a, um, a favorite topic of mine, because when I was off doing my cyber work for the book, but also just in my day-to-day work, I was astounded by the number of people who are supposed to be responsible for either our national defense or intelligence who were viewing cyber two or three years ago as this little side issue that was an interesting subculture instead of at the center of our defense issues. And I think that Corey uh, could certainly testify to the degree to which you see that happen in space. And you can we've certainly uh, seen this, as Rosa has pointed out, in a number of other areas. And that doesn't mean that the lawmakers, particularly lawmakers, need to be expert on all these things. They weren't expert on nuclear weapons in the 1950s when these were coming out. But you can't imagine somebody saying in the 1950s what I heard so often in the cyber realm and still hear some today, which is, oh, this is so complicated. I have to go ask my 17-year-old daughter to go explain it to me. 17-year-old, no, David, you got to go with the seven-year-old. Okay, or even, even better. And you sort of wanted to shake these people and say, in 1960, would it have been acceptable to say, oh, all these nuclear weapons and missiles and this stuff about throw weights, and it's all got physics in it. I'm going to go ask my teenage son. No, that person would have been laughed off of the Armed Services Committee. And yet, if the attacks we're seeing every day are in the cyber realm or they're in the space realm or whatever, you would think that there would be a, a similar concern. Now, we've been lucky in cyber and space issues in that, by and large, they have not been politicized. Climate and coronavirus have been. And so what you've seen in both cases is an active dismissal of the science. You know, at least in cyber and space, people can say, I don't have the expertise. In coronavirus, we have seen people say, oh, the experts are trying to pull the wool over your eyes. And you've seen that happen in some other realms as well. And so I think we've got sort of compounding problems here. Yeah, and I think part of that is cultural, isn't it, Corey? I mean, one of the things that you encounter a lot in government is this distinction between sort of what's important and what the specialists can kind of do. I mean, we've we've seen it, you know, in foreign policy in a variety of areas. People who did Latin America were always at the children's table. People who do cultural issues were always at the children's table. People who did climate issues were always at the children's table. These weren't seen as important issues. And yet 
you know, as we say with climate and cyber, but I could say it about other things. You know, you can say it about how artificial intelligence is going to change the way we do business and the way the economy works and the way countries grow and how we, you know, regulate our societies and the nature of conflict. We could say the same thing about whether people understand the Bitcoin economy or other kinds of economies that are emerging that will literally change the way people transact things with one another. And most of those things get relegated to these children's tables, but it's hard to, hard to imagine we can continue that. Why do these things persist? Why are these biases so hard to shake? I mean, we've been getting warnings about climate for a long time. And it's only in the past couple of years that we finally start seeing, you know, national security assessments that mention it. And I bet the number of meetings in which it comes up for those national security officials after they have mentioned it is relatively few. It was relatively few until recently, David. I think the the year of ransomware and so forth has made this pretty common. In, In one area, right, in the cyber subset of it. So I think there are a couple of reasons, David. The first is policymakers have so many urgent problems that they have to make decisions on that the immediate tends to crowd out even very important longer term stuff because your time is limited and the near term consequences almost always feel more pressing when you're in a policy environment. So that's one thing. The second thing is the magnitude of the problem. You know, I've been having this discussion in a different context, which is people asking the question, why doesn't Taiwan spend 50% of its GDP on defense, given how overwhelming China's threat is? And I think at least part of the answer is that when a problem feels so big you can't solve it, people have a tendency to try and avoid solving it. They feel overwhelmed by the problem. They don't think any individual actions or even state-level actions can make a difference. And actually, you begin to see this in polling of national security threats and optimism versus pessimism among America's youngest citizens and soon-to-be voters, right? Young people are incredibly pessimistic about the future because they look at the problem of climate change and it feels so overwhelming and they see it not being a priority for policymakers. So I think the magnitude of the problem also has something to do with it. It makes people feel disempowered, which is where leadership comes in. Right. That's why it matters for policy people to put big, long term systemic challenges also on the policy agenda. A third thing I would say, though, is that, um, you know, just as all of us who care about national security had to develop a basic proficiency on terrorism and on the Middle East after 9-11 and All of us are being dragged into a proficiency of China and the challenges of defense in the first island chain. We are also being dragged to proficiency in other problems as they perk up the policy agenda. So again, that's a leader, it's partly a leadership issue, but it's also the nature of the other challenges 
you're facing. And the public pressure, which is the last thing I would say, it really matters that my mom and my nephews think national security challenges ought to prioritize to climate and not to terrorism. That's going to change how political leaders prioritize those things. Because after all, the American government almost never does anything unless the public makes them and holds them accountable. You think we're on the verge of that, Rosa? These reports, you know, and this one, you know, with the language they use is, you know, code red for humanity. The language is out of a a science fiction movie where Dennis Quaid is racing to save New York from going underwater. Totally justifiably. I'm not minimizing it, but I don't see the policy changing, you know, that. And it's not that, I mean, this administration has been fairly aggressive on it. It's brought in a climate czar, John Kerry, who's been fairly active. It's been a lot of time reversing Trump administration policies. But per David's point about the politicization of these things, it was eight months ago that the administration of the United States government was dedicated to doing the opposite of what we were supposed to be doing. And by the way, it's happening right now. I don't, I hate to say it, but you know, Joe Manchin has so much power that in these infrastructure and other bills that are being passed, we're not being tough on getting rid of coal and gas. We're not doing what we need to do on fossil fuels because of the politics, even as this is happening. It's really stunning. It is both stunning and completely unsurprising and for all the reasons that Corey mentioned. This is exactly the kind of challenge that, that humans are really crappy at dealing with. You know, that, that things that are complicated, things that are slow moving, things that require multiple you know, millions of different actors to behave in a coordinated way. We're not good at that stuff. We're not good at recognizing the scope or urgency of the problem. We're not good at mobilizing around problems like that. So it's, it's not surprising in many ways. And in fact, I think I don't want I don't want to seem as cynical as the young people Corey referred to. But I, I think there is probably literally nothing the Biden administration could do to alter things enough to make a difference simply because there would be so much political backlash. Um, and by political backlash, I don't, I don't even mean from the Joe Mansions and, and, the, and the Republicans in Congress, I just mean nationwide. The level of behavioral change that would be required of so many millions of people would exceed the level of behavioral change that was required to successfully wage the Second World War. And I think unlike unlike a war, which people, people, are, people are actually pretty good at getting sort of like, oh, goodness, Hitler invaded, we've got to do this, you know, the, the, the immediate crisis. But, but I think that in this situation, you know, there would be the, the level of political violence, political chaos that already exists in this country would be quadrupled at, and, and be at a, a level that was sort of unsustainable if the Biden administration were to try to force people to do the things that we would actually need to do to make a dramatic difference in slowing climate change. For that reason, I, I, you know, it's totally depressing, but I, but I actually think that we have to hope like hell that there will be some technological fix, you know, some kind of, some kind of fix that doesn't involve millions upon millions upon millions of people making radical changes to their behavior 
that doesn't involve suddenly Congress becoming a completely different animal that doesn't involve every other country also going along with it. And this is an area where I don't know enough about the emerging research, but I think that any fix that requires that many people to make that many changes is, is probably doomed. Any fixes that we can come up with will have to be ones that can be implemented by a relatively smaller group of people, e.g. political elites or economic elites, et cetera. And I'm not super optimistic about any of that happening either. David, do we have to wait for generational changes to catch to deal with this, in which case we've got a problem? Is there something particularly wrong with the United States? The Europeans have been much more forward looking and leaning on climate, at least. China's been, you know, sort of both sides of the coin leading the way on solar and green technology while burning a lot of of coal. But, you know, the beginning of the last administration, it was the former chairman and CEO of ExxonMobil that was the secretary of state. You know, the United States in in many ways is and is the problem here. Is it just we have a corrupt political system that, you know, you can write a big check and, you know, we promote bad policies. What's going to drive the change? Well, first of all, it is generational. And what I find interesting is when I talk to students, when I talk to people in their 20s and 30s, not to suggest that all of us are not in that age group, I find that Republican and Democrat, liberal and conservative sort of melt away on the climate issue, that there really is a sort of unanimity of opinion, at least on the question of the human causes. You you mean among students? Among students and people up through their mid-30s to late-30s, not total unanimity, but a much. I, I find that there is much more of a generational split on that issue than on most. You're much more likely to predict somebody's reaction on climate according to the generation they're in than according to their party affiliation. And that I consider to be a hopeful thing. I think that what we've learned from this report today is something that we've seen in a few areas, which is, yeah, we lost four years on this issue during the Trump administration, but it it couldn't have been a worse four years, right? That, that that timing turns out to really be central to what was going on here. And so that's what worries me, which is that by the time the body politic catches up with the science, we will have done more irreversible damage, which is the essence of the report that we, that we read today. That tells you something about how out of sync lawmakers are on some issues with the electorate and why this rather odd moment that we find ourselves in, where we've got a Democratic president who won not by a huge amount, but by by a significant margin, uh, is running up against state legislatures that are almost all, uh, you know, are very largely controlled by Republicans. You've seen it in the voting rights issues, but you're also seeing it in the local initiatives on climate. So I think we are gonna be behind. And I think this explains why Biden does not sit there and cite reports like this. He spends his time citing the competition with China because he's recognized that some Cold War sensibility here of a race with China, whether it is on semiconductor production, whether it is on electric cars, whatever, 
is much more likely to be successful for him than getting into an argument about the science of climate. Is that even the argument, Corey? I mean, in, in some respects, I mean, I realize that one of the things as I was reading this today, I was thinking the only way to deal with this problem, and, and maybe it's just because I'm a process guy or that's what I've studied, is that somebody involved with climate's got to be in the room in every meeting. And when somebody says, we're going to build this ship or we're going to deploy this thing or we're going to hire this thing or we're going to invest in this kind of infrastructure or we are going to face this kind of challenge, somebody's got to say, What's the climate impact? How do we mitigate? I don't think that's a good enough answer, David. And the reason is that I would parallel it to cyber, right? Because that was initially everybody's response to cyber. We need a cyber guy. But unless, for example, the commander of a military unit has a basic understanding about how cyber is going to affect her ability to use violence, then they run the risk of being marginalized in the process. What we need for these longer term crucial issues to be policy priorities is all of us who work on the issue have to develop enough understanding that it's intrinsic to how we think about our decisions. It's not gonna be good enough to paste on, I mean, for example, John Kerry sitting in a room is not going to dictate how we fight a war with China or how we prepare for a war with China. But having a secretary of defense who actually has an understanding intrinsically about how those issues are going to affect our ability to prepare for, our ability to sustain combat, our ability to recover in the wake of combat, like that's what's going to make the difference. I want to say one other thing, though, unrelated to the question that you asked me, because it relates to what you were saying, what Rosa was saying, and what David was saying. All of those American failures and all of the dark complaints about the United States are totally true. And yet, we are the first country that met its Paris Climate Accords goals, despite mansion, despite Congress, despite Americans desiring to watch Kardashians rather than to watch the day after about climate apocalypse. And the reason is because even despite the Trump administration's withdrawal from the treaty, the pushback against regulatory control in business and other, right? What changed it was the great golden state of California setting restrictive emission standards, Mike Bloomberg pumping money into mayoralties all across the country to begin to address this issue, the sanctimoniousness of Tim Cook and Apple computers wanting to look virtuous to their customers and thereby reinforcing their brand. And, you know, my mom thinking maybe she should drive an electric car because she hopes her grandchildren don't live in an apocalypse. All of those things combined to have the United States meet the standard before any other country, despite official high government opposition, Congress unwilling to, all of the things that you guys rightly pointed to as restrictions on America's abilities, those also get balanced by having a system so open to civic activism, to federalism, to the role of businesses in 
shaping public attitudes. And we shouldn't forget those upsides. David, can I just go back to Corey's um, point about military commanders for a second? Because we have a historical analogy to this, and it was the rise of air power. So after World War I, we had very few commanders with any experience in it who actually thought that air power was integral to what they were doing. After World War II, you couldn't get promoted if you didn't understand the degree to which air power was integral to what you were doing. What created the innovation in the 1930s, the emergence of the carrier battle group and the ability to fight across the maritime expanse of the Pacific, was that you had an urgent operational problem that air power became the solution to. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And we need, we in both climate and certainly in cyber, we need that. I just want to remind both of you, that's where I started today. <laughs> uh, in other words, I, 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 I began by saying we need to train people in all of these things. I, I, I raised maybe Corey, we should reconsider our position because we find ourselves returning to where David started no. off. What we need to conclude is that David is exactly right. <laughs> was exactly right. And, they, and and the reason I brought up the process thing was an interim fix because we need to start fixing this problem immediately. And that's what was brought up by this uh, report today. And we, you know, we're not going to achieve the generational change or the educational change as quickly as we would like to do that. Because I've spent a lot of my life dealing with energy and climate issues, because I've been very interested in the intersection of science and technology and policy for a long time. I, I do have to point out the Paris Accord is a sham. Okay. The Paris Accord was a lousy agreement because it was a weak agreement, because essentially the agreement was among countries to meet their own standards. And it did not move the ball down the field on these other things. So while there are some good things to say, as Corey has just done, I think it's very important to also get the message from this that we are not moving fast enough, broadly enough, multilaterally or nationally. But Rosa, one of the things that Corey just brought up, uh, which might be worthy of a little bit of examination, is her praise of federalism. You know, in the United States, we've got the state of Texas setting its energy policy, or the state of North Carolina setting its energy policy, and they're doing a terrible job. And they have politicized this issue. In other countries, these things are national. Is this one of the problems we face? I think there's a debate, both a theoretical debate and a very urgent practical debate about which kinds of decisions and policies should be at which level of government. And there are lots of things that it probably does make sense to leave to the more local level. You know, that, that the U.S. Uh, is not it's not a homogeneous nation. The economy is different to different places. Culture is different in different places. Geography, you name it. The virtue of federalism is, is let's let different groups of people with different needs and priorities come up with different solutions that are more appropriate for them. The problem is that when you get specifically this kind of issue where it's relatively easy for a small number of actors to be spoilers for everybody else, you know, so it's not something that is easily, the impact is not localized, but you have decisions being made at the local level that have a, an impact that is not only national, but global. From the abstract perspective, those should not be decisions that are left in the hands of local actors, not to diss the U.S. Constitution, which is a 
brilliant and amazing document, which in its time represented the, you know, the forefront of political thought. But we are essentially in this country, we have chained ourselves to this more than 200 year old document in all kinds of ways that make it extraordinarily difficult for us to adapt to, among other things, uh, the impact of changing technologies. Um, and that, that's a real problem for us politically. Yeah, it's true. By the way, the, one of the impacts of changing technologies is the cultural differences are smaller. The economies are more integrated and you live in the information age. And, you know, Massachusetts is a lot closer to South Carolina than it was, you know, and so some other aspects color all of this. David, before we end, I want to pick up on one technology issue that you've been writing about very recently that you know may or may not fall exactly into this category, but it, it has to do with this Havana syndrome thing where we're talking about, you know, sonic warfare, next generation warfare, but is it, is it the Russians or are we sure? And it's just a micro case of, of all of this where it doesn't seem clear that anybody really knows what's going on. I know the government had a meeting on this recently and you very recently, and you reported on it. You want to give us a 90 second update on that? Sure. It's, uh, it remains a mystery. So on Friday, uh, the director of national intelligence, Avril Haines convened the joint intelligence community council, a group that had not met, I think in five or six years to go try to figure out where they were on this issue. And you'll remember that starting in 2016, we saw some unexplained illnesses, first among diplomats, then later on among CIA officers. We've now seen a new wave of this in Vienna, but in the interim, there have been attacks and or there have been cases in Washington, D.C. There have been cases throughout Europe. There was one in Guangzhou and, and China. There have been cases in Russia in which the lead theory is that there is some kind of a microwave beam that is being aimed at American diplomats and CIA officers, their families, and the result has been significant traumatic brain injury that people have picked up on CAT scans without an actual concussion being evident. And uh, several other examples. We've also had some false alarms. We thought that there was an attack in Syria on American military that turned out to be food poisoning. You know, so it's not a clean thing. The result of the meeting on Friday was to say that we need to get to do a lot more about treating the people who have been afflicted, and there now look to be more than a hundred cases but that these two task forces set up by President Biden to go figure out the cause and then to come up with some detection mechanisms and some protections have gotten going, but they still haven't managed to prove the case. Russia is the lead suspect, but it's not the only suspect. And most people involved in this have said to me, they think that while the Russians are involved, they're not the only ones involved. It's 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 fascinating and terrifying if you're sitting and out there terrifying. With your kids, but right? but I'm gonna I'm gonna steal Corey's traditional role here and end on a positive note. That is a meeting in the United States government that, as David pointed out, was chaired by somebody with exactly the right training, and that's Avril Haines, who is a trained physicist who is now the the DNI, and she actually trained herself to be expert in a bunch of these areas and is one of the few senior officials in recent memory 
who's already where we we think people ought to be. So that's encouraging. And uh, hopefully there will be more of these things. I do want to say that one of the reasons I felt comfortable raising this issue is that each of you in your own way have been advocating for a change in the way the policy community looks at itself and looks at policy and trains itself for a long time. And it needs to happen faster. You guys were exactly right, as somebody might say. I hope we all get there soon. Uh, In the interim. Before we close, can I make an important public service announcement? Yes. Which is for the deep state radio nerds who've been watching this instead of just listening to this, you will have seen the mysterious rise of a book on owls by our own Rosa. And you should press David and David to explain why that is true. There is a logic and an insider nerdy joke about this that David and David are accountable for. I will answer any queries about this in social media um, if people want to engage on that point. But one possibility that I'd like to raise for everybody as they listen to this is that there was no reason for Rosa to bring this up. And it was completely irrational. And she does this kind of thing all the time. Can, can, I, can I argue, David, that you are completely wrong on this? And this is a really good sign that Rosa has moved past her obsession with silos and past you know, her house hunting for living in old nuclear silos and now is happy to be in the woods with, with owls. It's, it's going to get us back to our... Our, our spirit animal conversation. Rosa's spirit animal is the mule deer of Wyoming. No, my spirit animal is the sloth, unfortunately. You and me both. All right, guys, thank you very much. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, David. Thank you to everybody for listening. Please join us again soon as we continue discussions like this one. If you want to hear more about them, go to the dsrnetwork.com. While you're there, sign up, become a member, help us to to more conversations like this one and uh, maybe devote an entire podcast to owls and the mule deer of Wyoming. In the meantime, as things get more and more dangerous again out there, be careful. Take care of yourself. Stay safe. Bye-bye.